Hey, Jonathan, I've got something for you. Oh, hey, Curtis, what's that? It's a set of rules about our friendship. Oh, okay. First of all, I've done some good things for you in your life. Well, yeah, yep, you have. So, you're not allowed to have any friends that you like better than me. Oh, hmm. Actually, you're not even allowed to have pictures of them. What? Don't hang out with them, because I'm jealous, and you and your whole family tree are going to be in big trouble if you do. Okay, Curtis, I'm, I'm leaving. But if you follow my rules, I'm going to be really nice to you. How does that sound? Well, frankly, it sounds insane. Yeah, I know. So can you help me out? Why is it okay when God does it? Oh, I, I get where you're going with this. You're talking about the first of the Ten Commandments. Seems like a tough pill to swallow, right? How can a God who's willing to punish children for their parents' actions be described as merciful? Yeah, and how can anyone that is this possessive and offers such seemingly conditional love be the moral and existential role model that God is supposed to be? Well, things might seem bleak, but I think if we dig into this text with some insider knowledge of correspondences, we just may be able to find that love and wisdom that we're looking for, perhaps even see that the spiritual meaning of the commandment is in a way the opposite of what you just proposed. You up for that? You better believe it. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Today we're going to be looking at the spiritual meaning of the first of the Ten Commandments. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm your host, and with me today, as always, with Swedenborg scholar Dr. Jonathan Rose. Thanks for being here. Hey, Curtis. And I think we've got to start today with a warning. Yes, I'd say the things around here are about to get internal, if you know what I mean. Uh, well, if you don't, we're going to be looking at this first of the Ten Commandments from the Bible. But if you're not familiar with Swedenborg, you might be surprised to find us unpacking hidden layers of meaning in the text. The internal sense of the Bible is something Swedenborg wrote thousands of pages on, as you know. And the concept is a little too complicated to fully explain here. But check out our episode, What the Bible Is, for a little more about it. That said... If you don't acknowledge the principle of an internal sense, the text itself of the Bible can get downright confusing. Mm. And, and I'm not the only one to notice that. We, we got a com this comment from somebody watching the channel. Uh, Philomena asks from Facebook, here's my question. I'm really enjoying your series. Thanks for responding on YouTube as well. I do have a question. I get that Jesus is God, is a part of himself, etc. However, does Swedenborg say anything about the commandment of thou shalt have no other gods before me? Also, the references to God being a jealous God. I ask because you say that each religion is represented in heaven, which makes more sense. It seems contradictory. Thanks. So mm. how does Swedenborg get off, you know, saying like any religion can be a path to heaven, uh, you know, there's, God is known, can be known by many different ways by different people, but also there's this commandment clearly in the Old Testament that seems to be advocating the opposite. Yeah, that's right. And how does Jesus fit in with that? That's a good question. Exactly. So let's let's for, to refresh our memory. Let's take a look at the first commandment mm. and then uh, see if we can figure out our way through it. I am Jehovah your God, who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. You shall not have other gods before my face. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, because I am Jehovah your God, God the zealous, bringing the consequences of the Father's wickedness on the sons, on the third generation, and on the fourth generation among those who hate me, and performing mercy to thousands among those who love me and keep my commandments." So there's the, the external or literal meaning uh, mm. of the commandment, and it's, it's relatively confusing. Some stuff is pretty puzzling, but Swedenborg is saying that that's actually sort of like a code, that you can get at these inner spiritual levels of meaning there that really underlie the principle of the whole thing. Well, so what is it? What, what is that essence of the commandment there? Yeah, well, I think that the best way to understand what this commandment really means is to show you what it's like to break it. Break it? Is that safe? It, it's here. All right, I've been waiting for this thing. The break zone 750. 
Brake Zone 750, congratulations on your purchase. The Brake Zone 750 will allow you to safely break divine commandments briefly and for educational purposes only by instantly neutralizing any potentially harmful effects of your demonstration. Yeah, and I think what it should do in this situation is shrink me down to a size where I won't really be a danger as I break this commandment. Okay, so here we go. Let's see, dial this in. Ready? In everything I think and everything I do, I'm going to put myself first. I'm more important than everyone. I'm cooler than everyone. And everything I learn is going to go toward making me the ruler. My ideas are the best and everyone should agree with them or else. I'm going to pretend that I'm good and wise. I know just what makes people believe that someone is a good moral spiritual person. And I'm going to use that to trick them. Oh man, I'm smart. I'm awesome. I'm more smart and awesome than anyone ever. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, that that really takes a lot out of you. Well, it's interesting to me that the focus was really on how you behave and your motivations rather than selecting some deity or some particular name for God. So there's an instance of breaking the first commandment, but don't you think we still need to kind of explain what the internal sense is of that a little bit more? Yes, and we're going to. We're going to go step by step Mm. in part one. So yeah, we're going to break this commandment down bit by bit, because whenever Swedenborg explains the internal sense of the biblical text, it's quite complicated. However, you see from these complex parts a really moving, I I think, picture emerge. So let's see what our pieces here are and what we can get out of it. The commandment begins like this. I am Jehovah your God. And you might think, okay, that could just be a name tag. You know, why does that even have to be said? Why the repetition of names, every word has meaning. This is Secrets of Heaven 8864. I am Jehovah your God symbolizes the Lord's deified human manifestation as universally sovereign over every single thing that relates to goodness and truth. Now, even Jehovah and God, why saying I'm Jehovah your God? Well, those are the two primary aspects of God, that Jehovah is this divine love and God is the divine truth, and that those together form this human Uh, moving, loving God. So then it goes on, Jehovah God refers to the Lord's deified human manifestation, because those two together become this, this, this manifestation of God. Because in the heavens, they cannot picture or even sense the divinity that is actually within the Lord, and therefore cannot believe in it or love it, they can only picture and sense a deified human being. So it means that the actual divine as it is, even angels, wait, what's that? When you picture like a personal God, that God is a deified human being, that's enough for our finite minds to connect with the reality uh, of the infinite. The concept of God being divine actually cannot actually be communicated to the angels in heaven, let alone to humans on earth, except through the idea of a deified human being. So there, we get two things out of that. One is this need for to think of God as a person. God is a person that we can form relationship with, like a really special person, but still something along the scale of personhood. And the other thing is this love and the wisdom and everything. And Swedenborg says that that is the way the commandment begins, because that idea of this human loving God has to be universally sovereign in everything that follows. So over over and over again, he repeats this phrase, that the Lord needs to be sovereign. Okay, but that, we've just taken a commandment and sort of made it more confusing and more wordy. What is that Lord needs to be sovereign, and how is that something practical that matters in in my life day to day? Let's keep going. Let's see if we can find some answers there. So, first clues in Secrets of Heaven 8865. He says, for humans, what is universally sovereign is that which can be found within every single one of our thoughts and wishes. Okay, well, there's a, that's a straightforward definition. It is therefore what constitutes our very mind and life. The Lord must be sovereign because it is so for the angels in heaven, of whom we say they are in the Lord. The Lord becomes our sovereign when we not only trust that all goodness and truth are given to us by him, but also when we love the fact that this is so. We're starting to get some form around this idea of God being sovereign. So something about it is having this divine humor, divine love, and all the things we think about, 
during the day. You know, you think about the, the sort of things that make up your daily concerns and all the good things in your life somehow have God inside them. But I don't know still, what does that mean? What would that look like? And Swedenborg says that part of that is saying, believing in, and loving the, the idea that everything that's good and true in us is the Lord. So this is a gift from the Lord. And he says, yeah, that, that's how the angels actually do it. So emulating an angelic mind is not that bad of a hobby. So let's look a little more about what that consists of. This is Secrets of Heaven 8865. The angels not only trust that this is the case, but also have an awareness of it. This is why their life is the Lord's life within them. Their life's desire is to live in the love given to them by the Lord. And their life's understanding consists in living in the faith given to them by the Lord. This explains why the Lord is the all in all of heaven and why he himself is heaven. When the Lord is sovereign within us, the members of his church, remember Swedenborg saying church as this universal internal condition of the spirit, as universally as he is within the angels of heaven, then he is within everything that we believe to be good and true. This is like the heart's relationship to every blood vessel, because blood vessels originate in the heart and they draw from it the blood for which they exist. So there's a, there's a tangible idea for you, that, that having the, the love and the faith from God, like the heart, just pushes that out into all the parts of our circulatory system, so is this, this love and wisdom coming to us from God. So we're starting to get a picture, but I feel like there's more to be developed, and it actually, to get there, we need to go to the next part of the commandment. So it says this. Who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. That's a pretty tangible image, right? Being led out of captivity, but not all of us have been in captivity externally. However, Swedenborg says we've all experienced internal captivity. And this is actually the freeing from hell that God does for us. That as soon as we're willing to learn a little bit of spirituality. We've already been freed a little bit from the ego sort of sleep that our natural tendencies lead us towards, but God continues to lead us out from there. And actually, within those words are contained the the truth that only the divine wisdom can get us out of our psychological entanglement with the, the destructive things in the human mind. That it's just, you're not going to be able to do that by any other way. To illustrate what a scenario like that is, uh, we have a video game, as all spiritual things relate essentially to video games. There's a video game that illustrates what it's like in a situation where the only way you can get out of something is to have very specific knowledge, right? And this is, would be an analog to the divine knowledge. So first we're going to show you what it's like to try to do this game. It's called Bomb Diffuser, and you've got to try to dismantle a bomb, but you've got to do it in a very specific order or else it's going to blow up, just like real bombs if you've ever done one of those. But we're going to show you what it's like without that knowledge and then what it's like with the knowledge. So here, illustrating spiritual concepts is a video game. Okay, we've got four minutes. I've got three modules here. The first one, there's a screen that says there, T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. There's six buttons. Sure, done, your, your, with an apostrophe, like, and uh-huh. Oh, your. With an apostrophe? Yeah. No, that's wrong. Uh, well, there's one up at the top with a, is a case, plastic case over a big yellow button that says press. Don't press. Okay, let's go back to uh, this. This now it's, the screen says you, and there's left, uh, right, no, wait, and ready. Ready. Okay, that's two strikes. Uh, I have right, top, bottom, and left arrows. Okay, one of the red triangles. Is that them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get another one. <laughs> One, one chance left here. There's a black wire and a red wire. Okay, the black. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, what are you guys think of that? Okay. So that's without instruction. There's no way to get through. The whole thing seems like a puzzle. Why do we continue to fail? But here you're going to see how in this game, there's a very specific set of knowledge that you need to get you through this, and that this is an analog for how only the, the mysteries and the, the keenness of divine wisdom can actually uh, get us out of our entanglements. All right, so we've got three panels. Top left is a display panel with the number two in it. Below are the numbers two, three, four, and one. Okay, um, press the second button in the second position. Okay. 
Alright, that was it. It's green. Okay. Um, okay, we got a panel with uh, four wires going from top to bottom. Okay, so what is the first wire? Blue. Just blue? Yep. Uh, uh, cut the wire if the last digit of the serial number is even. Uh, cut, then. Cut the blue? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cut. Wow, four cuts. Alright. Now, last panel is, uh, there's a bunch of dots, two green circles, a rotating red triangle. Uh, the maze. The triangle is bottom right up one. From oh, I'm sorry, where's the white light? The white light is right, far right hand column, third from the top. Okay, where's the triangle? Two down from that. Hit down twice. So my brother Matt plus the manual equals divine love and wisdom. But you see, you see, you've got to you've got to have this very specific path out, and this is why it's essential to acknowledge God and acknowledge the ability of God to leave lead us out of this maze that Swedenborg calls hell. So it's beginning to come together, right? You need to have God in your thoughts and feelings, and you need that because that's what's going to lead us to safety. But I feel like there's more to the puzzle. And one way to look at that is to see what could disrupt this process. So this is illustrated where we go in the commandment from statements about who God is and what God does to what we need not to do. So here's the next part. You shall not have other gods before my face. And here's where we get to, well, why are you so worried about that? Swedenborg explains in Secrets of Heaven 88. Six, seven. You shall not have other gods before my face. The symbolism of this is that we are not to think truth comes from any source other than the Lord. This is because God is, God's is symbolic of what is true and in the negative sense of what is false. And face, when speaking of God, is symbolic of love, mercy, peace, goodness, and therefore the Lord himself, since these things come from him, the face being the image of, of what's inside. And now are established the kinds of things we must avoid because they would ruin or prevent the Lord from being universally sovereign within each and every truth contained in the principles and laws declared and commanded from Mount Sinai. Remember that universally sovereign is the thing we're after. The main thing that would prevent this from happening is to think truth, oh, here's the main thing, is to think truth comes from some source other than the Lord, symbolized by you shall not have other gods before my faith. Or maybe my face. So, there you have it. Sorry, I was so deep in, into my next thought. So, that's, that's a little bit confusing, though, because we know that the Lord needs to be sovereign, right? That's important. But also, we know that thinking the truth came from somewhere else would disrupt it, which... That's not a very emotionally satisfying concept, like, okay, thinking the truth came from somewhere else. What is it? Is it just sort of like, you know, a record company where, okay, we made the music originally, and yeah, if you download it illegally on the web, you'll get the same music, and it's just as good, but you didn't download it from us, so therefore it's it's illegitimate? Is that what God is saying? Like, I, everyone's got to know that the truth came from me. It's it, No, it's, it's actually completely different than that. And Swedenborg describes just what he means by the truth coming from the Lord in uh, S-H, Secrets of Heaven, 8868. Truth does not have the Lord within it when we take it from the word, especially its literal meaning, and use it to argue in favor of our control over other people or for our own enrichment. Wow. So that's what it is. That's what truth not coming from the Lord is. It's not acknowledging the source as much as it is how you use it. Because it comes from the word, this is actually truth, so we can get these concepts that actually are true. It is not true here, though, because it is used in arguing for a sinister purpose and therefore is perverted. So it's not even considered true if it's being used for sort of a false negative purpose. Truth that comes from the Lord always remains the Lord's truth truth because of its inner aspect. Truth that does not come from the Lord appears to be true only from its outward appearance. It is not true in its inner aspect because within it is vanity, falsity, and evil. For something to be true, there needs to be life in it. And truth without life is truth we do not believe. Life does not come from anywhere other than being good, that is, through goodness that is given to us by the Lord. If the Lord is not within the truth, it is truth without life and therefore not 
truth. And that'd be a hard passage to read for like someone who makes the dictionary. Cause he's like, define, I got this word that you think means something. Then, oh, it actually means this. And then it actually means this. But the takeaway is that for truth, to acknowledge the truth comes from the Lord and to not believe that it comes from some other source is in not using the truth for something ego, self-centered, and rather using it for the positive, universal purpose that the Lord intends always to everyone in the human race. What would that look like in an example? Well, let's say that I... What's it like to have the, the, the... Lord universally sovereign inside an idea or a thought. Let's say that I was having a desire and a thought that th- I hope that this show is going to be good. If I was just doing that for glory, if I want this show to be good just to pump myself up, then like a rudder, this comes in, uh, this glory pushes it down because that's coming from some other source other than the Lord, right? The Lord is not interested in raising the people producing this show up uh, so that they're better than other people. But if I say, I want this tr- show to be good for the help it's going to do, then you got the Lord inside that. The Lord is lifting it up because we're trying to give people positive spiritual tools, which leads them to happiness and eternal life, and that that's what God is trying to do always for everybody. So that's what it is to have the Lord being universally sovereign. Yes, that makes sense. I can see how that could be something you really could apply. Good. And just so we can really solidify it, let's clarify through a few more examples. How, what does it mean to have the Lord be sovereign mm. in a heart and in a mind? Well, if you think first of the example of Jesus, I'm thinking about the fact that he loved people who others thought were not lovable. Yeah. He visited people. He he sort of broke rules about who you were allowed to do hands-on healing for or yeah. you know who you were allowed to eat with and all that that he he understood people who people thought were not understandable. He forgave people who others thought were not you know forgivable. Mm-hmm. Um Well that's that's that is the Lord. So if Jesus is the Lord, he's got to have the Lord first, right? And that's, that's right. That's got to be right. that he's running the complete program. So but how do I scale that down into into mm. my own life? How, I guess it would be similar kind of behaviors um and and just this general um movement towards love for the whole human race rather than individual advancement. Right? right, right. Somehow what it's making me think is that you get out of the island of self and yeah. really understand that others exist outside of you and they they have needs and situations, whatever. So you come to have a little bit of that compassion and understanding that, that Jesus showed and it just takes a selflessness, you know, a focus outside of self. And you can even think, even things that wouldn't seem, even when I'm driving, there's a tendency to just think about myself and where I need to go. But defensive driving, mm. I'm thinking, okay, not only am I going to be able to change lanes where I want, but how am I affecting the other cars around me? How Oh, here comes uh, people are coming onto the highway. How could I make this a good experience mm. for everyone? As long as you can safely do it, sort of thinking uh, uh, more about how's everyone doing, rather than like, I'm the that's one. That's right. I want everyone to get where they're going today. All right. Well, that's yeah. cool. And I, so I'm getting that, and that's got a good feel towards it. It's a, it's a loving sort of thing, but that's not where the commandment ends. There's, there's more that we have to get through and find some kind of internal mm, meaning in. That's right. And we'll look at that in part two. So, okay, we got the first part of that commandment down. Uh, what are these things that we're not supposed to be creating? The Bible is interesting and specific about what we're not supposed to be creating, what we're not supposed to be making. Let's have a look at that. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. So what are these other gods, these idols and so forth? Obviously, in a literal meaning, it just is talking about that we should not be making physical things and bowing down and worshiping them. But why this specificity? It's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? So let's look, first of all, at what are these other gods? Here's a quote from Revelation Explained, number 950. It's brief. Whatever you love more than anything else, that is your god. Mm, now that's tough. So we may not think of ourselves as idolaters. Oh, I don't worship that or I'm not doing this. But don't we all have other things that we love above all else? Oh, that's my passion. That's the central thing. And if that's not of God, that's an idol that, that we're worshiping. So that does cut a little close to home, doesn't it? 
And uh, one obvious example that comes to mind is addiction in all its various different forms is something that we may be bowing down to and worshiping and making sacrifices for in some way, because we love that thing so much. Uh, But if that's not of God, it's being destructive in our lives. And this passage also mentions these two different things, crafting and imitating. So let's have a look at these. What is crafting to begin with? Let's read Secrets of Heaven 8869, which gives us an insight into what this crafting is that we're not supposed to be doing. You shall not make for yourself a carved image is symbolic of not relying on our own intelligence. This makes sense, the quote says, because a carved image is a symbol of something that does not come from the Lord, but from our ego. A carved image symbolizes the product of our own intellect, and a cast image symbolizes our own desires. Now, that's interesting to me that you have the carved is something that your mind kind of hammered out, and the cast image is something that your will, your desire created. When we regard either the one or the other as our God and worship it, we love whatever comes from ourselves more than anything else. We want our ideas to be worshipped as though they are divine. Interesting, this does once again get from a world of sort of Bronze Age worship of idols and so forth to something that hits really close to home. This is our own thinking, things that we create with our understanding or our will, and then we not not only bow down to these things ourselves, but we want others to get on board with this. And so something that we craft is something that we ourselves have shaped to say, I think this is the way reality is or ought to be, and I want everybody to bow down to this great idea that I've had. The problem there is that it comes from ourselves. It's not coming from the Lord in us. How about this imitating? What is imitating? And there are three different categories, aren't there? Let's have a look at this quote from Secrets of Heaven 8870. Or any likeness. See, we're not supposed to do the crafting. We're also not supposed to do any likeness. Symbolizes an imitation of what comes from God. An imitation. Mm. This is symbolic of truth coming from some source other than God, and yet still resembling the truth. Imitating things that come from a divine source occurs when people profess divine thoughts in public or even perform the sort of works commanded by God thereby misleading others into believing that they are good and believe the truth when in fact they're thinking the exact opposite in their heart and wish nothing but evil. Such people are frauds, hypocrites, and deceivers. These are the people who make an imitation of what comes from a divine source. Wow, so this is creating things. This is really talking about a kind of hypocrisy. And isn't this something that we've all seen where uh, people can set themselves up as some kind of an authority and then it really comes out in the news that, oh, they were just abusing their followers or whatever. It's taking those things that look like they're some religious or spiritual insight that's going to help you in your life, but actually the people perpetrating it are just taking advantage of people and aggrandizing their own wealth or or their own you know glory in the world and those kind of things. Uh, So this is something that the Lord is forbidding, not because he wants all the glory for himself, but because it really gets in a way of our ability to receive what he's giving us. And we're taught that we're not to make these imitations of things that are in the heavens or on earth or in the waters that are under the earth. Swedenborg talks about different kinds of truth. And we can kind of see this, there's spiritual truth. In other words, there's truth that has to do with the nature of God, nature of life after death, the nature of our own minds and hearts and so forth. Then there's more worldly kind of moral and civil truth that has to do with just how we live amongst each other. Like, oh, we know that, oh, that's not fair or that's not done. That's not the right way that we interact with with other people and so forth. And then under the water is like scientific truth, <clears throat> just stuff that's medically accurate, other sorts of scientific research and so forth. Um, there's a tendency in the human heart, is there not, to try to say, oh, well, I found this thing, you know, everybody needs to, uh, you know, bow down to this. When I was a kid, I went through something called the 11 plus test, 
that was in England because someone had said there was research that at the age of 11, you can already tell whether people are going to go on this track or that track. It turned out years later that this guy had just made up all the all the information contained in this. He had cited his own self under pseudonyms and so forth to, to put forward this science, and this whole nation is following this. It, it's kind of amazing how this can actually happen. So this can happen with spiritual truth. Don't make an image of stuff up there. This can happen with seemingly moral stuff. Uh, Don't mess with that kind of truth. And this can even happen with scientific truth. People try to gain power over others. So saying, hey, I've got this amazing thing that will help you lose weight or whatever it is. The key to it all is not to bow down to these things like there's an ulterior motive behind it. The motive is so important. It's not the nature of the information. What makes it idolatry is that if this is being used for some purpose other than serving God's aims, which are to bless everyone and to make everyone be something and have them rescued and saved from hell and so on. If it's serving any other purpose than that, some worldly, some financial goal, some self-centered goal of your own glory and your own face on every, you know, except a bus or something, uh, that is coming from the wrong place. That's not of God. And so uh, an important additional point to make is that this is not talking about don't fake it till you make it. You know what I mean? You've heard that expression that uh, it's not talking about that it's wrong. Oh, then I should never act a way that I don't feel. I, if I'm, you know, if I don't want to go, I should just say I don't want to go or something. Uh, no, there's a lot in life that's about faking it till you make it. This is not talking about that kind of faking, which is for a good purpose to get along with other people, to sort of keep your lower self on a short leash and so on. Uh, This is really talking about when you're actually putting yourself in the place of God or your ideas, you know, your your pet theory or whatever it is in the place of God so that people will will bow down so that you'll get some glory from that. Uh, Curtis, you don't have any reaction to that? Hmm. Oh, sorry. I wasn't actually listening to to Hmm. your segment. But I was thinking, if we broke the first part of the commandment for illustrative purposes, we should probably break this part too. Mm. I'm almost done here. I just got to finish the face. Mm, Okay. Oops. Oh, I forgot to turn the break zone on. Ready? Hmm. It's it's not reacting. Well, maybe it's not reacting because I don't think you've actually broken the commandment. You broke your figure, but not the commandment. But how? I mean, this this is like I've got my carved image right here. Mm. Well, not that I had my feelings hurt by it, but if you had actually been listening to my section, you would have learned that the commandment isn't really about deifying physical objects. Mm. It's about not deceiving others in order to get your own way. It's about not worshiping your own agenda and perspective apart from divine love. Really, using objects in religious ritual isn't the danger. It's using objects or any means to worship yourself. Okay, I got it done. You ready to see? Ah! Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, I'm fine. And you know what? I think that I get it. So it's it's not about, it's not as much about, like, do you have a, a figurine or something that assists you in worship? It's more about taking something that's self-centered uh, and and exclusive and putting it in the spot where something loving and universal and mm. divine sh- should go, right? Swedenborg talks sometimes about getting the priorities of your loves the right way up. Like, yeah. love of God should be at the top, then love of the neighbor, and then love of self, love of the world, those kind of things. We actually did below, a very, so. very helpful video about that if you want to check it out. But I have a question, though. If God is so loving and great and all that, what is that next part of the commandment, as we were asked earlier, about the zealous God and the punishing the children for the sins of the parents? That's that? right. That's kind of a, an elephant in the room, isn't it? And we're going to meet that elephant in part three. So we've seen a bit about what it means to keep God first in the, in our hearts, in our minds. We've seen what the dangers are of crafting and imitating. But where does the commandment go from here? We're going to see that it's actually now a list of the consequences. What happens if we don't act in the prescribed way? So let's go to the text. Because I am Jehovah your God, God the zealous. And a lot of people are confused by this. Like, how are you going to have, some translations say, a jealous God, or in this one, God the zealous. Are those characteristics of God? This is describing what happens from our perspective when we make 
our own agenda or, or our own ego God, when we invert the order that's supposed to be there, what that does is actually corrupts our concept of divinity and makes it, because of that, seem like God is angry. Swedenborg describes this in Secrets of Heaven 8875. He says, in relation to people who do not accept the divine truth that comes from the Lord's divine goodness, a zealous God means evil and falsity. Because we start to see things from the perspective of evil and falsity, and that makes God seem like God is angry. For example, let's say that you only loved one particular group of people, the people that were most like you, and you thought, we're the best, everything should favor us, God should favor us. If you see a divine plan that wants everybody to be equally loving and respectful towards each other, that can feel threatening to your own group, right? That you can see that as anger. Or if there are destructive, harmful things, love of control or of being better than others, and you notice that the divine is trying to keep you away from those things, that seems like the divine is bringing evil, but it's our own perspective. We've set ourselves against the divine design. So we got that, but then here come some of the lines that are really difficult about this commandment. How, how is this about a loving, wise God? The first is this bringing the consequences of the father's wickedness on the sons. There's a, there's a glaring problem with that, which is how are you going to charge a kid for what their dad did, right? People, if, you know, my kids shouldn't have to pay for the problems that I cause. It just seems like it doesn't make any sense, right? It's just, it, even, it's just a childish form of retributive justice. How is this coming out of the divine? Well, in the internal sense, this is how when we break the commandment, when we set our own agenda, our own ego in the primary position, we actually spread falsity. It's the spread of falsity throughout our own minds. Swedenborg says, in the internal sense, the fathers are actually a a correspondence for evil, and then the sons are the falsity that comes from that, so that this is the progression, that you have this this love of dominion or something evil at the core, and that has this offspring, which are the false concepts, because if you're going to really look at life through this self-serving, uh, other people degrading lens, you've got to make some kind of worldview up that's going to justify that, and it's not the true worldview, so you've got to have these sons, which are these falsities. Um, and uh, that's that's just a necessary part of it. Secrets of Heaven 8876 says that these words symbolize the constant spread of falsity that results from evil. So it's not just a one thing, but if you've got that evil in the center, it's just radiating this falsity out into your mind. And obviously it's not about an actual punishment on children for the sins of their parents. Swedenborg even says that goes against divine order itself. So I'm glad we cleared that up. We know that God is not going to punish anybody for the sins of previous generations. What's the next part of the commandment? On the third generation and on the fourth generation. Right. So we've got, again, with this, on the next generations, it really sounds like it's saying that this is going to be passed on to your progeny. But remember, everything is correspondential, even numbers themselves. This, this, part of the passage is about the falsity that spreads throughout not just the upper levels of your mind, but your whole life, creating this web of distortion. And it's the numbers themselves stand for qualities. If you saw our show, The Meaning of Numbers, you'd see that every little numerical figure means something. That In this case, three means this long progression of falsity that arises because of three's meaning of completeness, and four is like two about being connected. And so there's this progressive uh, chain rooted back to the, the false god at the center. It's actually kind of like a spider's web as I mentioned before. So you have this sense of self-importance at the center of your spider's web. Suddenly you've got to have all these other points to keep life together. If you think you're better than everyone else, then suddenly you're worried about, well, I can do things better, so I better be the one who's doing all this stuff, and I want to make sure nobody one-ups me, so I've got to protect my reputation, and I can't reach out to anybody. It creates this entire web that wraps up your life and rejects the divine comfort that should be coming from that. And it's that rejection that is actually the subject of this next line in the commandment. Among those who hate me. So ultimately, that mindset of putting something else in the place of God rejects divinity 
itself. It's a, it's a mindset that's opposed to God, so it can't accept anything from God. This is Secrets of Heaven 8878. Among those who hate me stands for people who completely reject the Lord's divinity. The more they are influenced by evil and the resulting falsity, the more they not only reject his divinity, but also hate it. It is the Lord's divine nature they are rejecting. They cannot understand what a deified human being is because they have such an empty and meaningless concept of what divine means. Because if you don't understand the love that is inherent in what should be in the place of God in us, the word becomes meaningless. If you can put something that is finite and self-serving in that spot, you don't get this your mind isn't open to the idea of what what God actually is, what love personified actually is, and it creates all these all these problems that we're trying to avoid here. It just doesn't seem like a web you'd want to get tangled up in. Yeah, it actually seems like keeping the commandment might be a better deal. And so we don't forget how. Mm. Let's do the wrap-up. Like everything in the Bible, there's a core meaning to the first commandment that takes something potentially off-putting and confusing and infuses it with relevance and clarity. The beginning of the commandment urges us to make universal love the driving force in our thoughts and feelings. If we can make the Lord, who is divine love in action, sovereign in our minds, then we really set ourselves up to be freed from the psychological traps we find ourselves in. The imperative to not make carved images is warning us not to put what is self-centered in the place of reverence that should be reserved for the divine. We're also forbidden to mislead others, whether through a show of piety or mastery of intellectual concepts. Other people shouldn't be ours to control. The end of the commandment, which may seem like a threat in the literal sense, is really a warning that placing something harmful above all in our minds will have far-reaching, destructive effects in our own spirits that will spread well beyond the original issue itself. I say that confidently, but it's not the actual end end of the commandment. We haven't even done, like, the good part. There's more? The the friendly part. Do you remember? Oh, Oh, It says it right here. And performing mercy to thousands among those who love me and keep my commandments. So, mm. what does that mean? I mean, if all the all the harsh stuff has its own inner meaning, doesn't this have something as well? Well, right. it just so happens Swedenborg lays it out in Secrets of Heaven. There's a couple numbers here. You want to go ping pong them? Mm. Sure, I'll sure. Do the first. You want to go first? So, this is from Secrets of Heaven eight eight seven nine. And performing mercy to thousands symbolizes that they will be permanently blessed with goodness and truth. That's not so bad. This is consistent with the fact that mercy is the influence of goodness and truth that comes from the Lord in the subsequent spiritual life, which is granted by means of regeneration. From mercy, the Lord grants us whatever is needed for a life of eternal happiness. A thousand stands for a large quantity, so when it is describing divine mercy, it means it is permanent. Mm, and that's that divine permanent. providence knowing, I'm going to set you up for this. Just, just here's the, the, it's not like these are rules, this is the path, you know. Mm. So he goes on. Among those who love me symbolizes people who are open to loving what is good. This is consistent with the symbolism of loving Jehovah, that is the Lord, as being an openness to loving what is good. We love him when we stop doing evil, because evil gets in the way and repels that good influence coming from the Lord. Once evil is removed, we can receive the goodness that, thanks to him, is always present and trying to enter us. This is so universal. We're talking about how can there be many paths to heaven if it's just loving good and not doing evil is this connecting That's with, right. with the human God. Mm. And he finishes Secrets of Heaven 8880, and keep my commandments symbolizes being open to believing what is true. Truth can be learned and stored in our memory, but if we do not agree with it and act on it, it does not become living mm. truth. On the other hand, if it is drawn from our memory and embedded in our will by intellectual activity, that is, if we intentionally make it part of our habits and activity, then it becomes living truth, truth that we believe. This is accomplished by the Lord when we stop doing evil and do it uh, as, a, as a habit. Mm. I mean, that, I find that uplifting, the, the promise and the, the potential there. That's great. So... Uh, that's the end of our show for today. But if you stick around, let's let's do an audience question. Like okay, we always do. Great. First, a couple of thank yous f- from us to you. As always, thank you everyone so much for watching. We wouldn't have any reason to make a show without you. If you want to help this particular program get out into YouTube, please like it and also subscribe. And if you are even if you are subscribed, make sure you click that little bell to get notifications because you don't want to miss a single wonderful piece of content that we do, right? And if you want to be part of the the engine that makes this whole thing possible, consider supporting us on Patreon for just a dollar an episode. We can 
make this show together. And as a thank you, we'll be giving you awesome behind the scenes content every week. So please uh, give it a shot. See if you like it. All right, let's get now to one of your excellent questions. Okay, everybody, you ask, we try our best to answer. This is from the previous 10 questions show that we did, and it's Jennifer. I thought it was great. We wanted to put it in here. Here's my question. Do Swedenborg experts feel he may have been fallible in his understanding of some of his observations based on his cultural and religious perspectives? And if so, is some level of distortion of the material acceptable? I guess what I'm asking is, does Swedenborg's interpretation have to be perfect in every aspect, or are allowances made for his biases? Thanks for all your hard work on the show. It's wonderful. Mm. Thank you for asking. And I thought this was a great question to tackle, because this very issue has been a major point of discussion, sometimes downright contention between people who are who are following Swedenborg or following his ideas how how is there room for error in there are are there errors so I wanted to get your thoughts having delved into the the material so often mm. and so deeply in editing uh, what's your what's your response yeah there certainly are people there are people who th- think that I mean they don't usually use the word infallible but yeah. but that there's some kind of truth even in sort of numerical errors there's some kind of truth in there yeah. you know he meant that in some way or so something. there are numerical errors and that's what like he gets his references wrong yeah and, so sometimes the references are not yeah. right and so on and and um things that he crosses out and rewrites or whatever yeah um uh the way I view it there, you certainly do have the flavor of the 18th century in some works, particularly his work on marriage. Yeah. There are things in there from 18th century laws and, and things like that. The way I guess I hold it is that it shows a partnership between the Lord and Swedenborg, which is really what the books are all about. Yeah. And uh, so it's not a kind of nirvana situation where there's no Swedenborg left. There's just only... God, you know, yes. there, there's still a Swedenborg in there. Well, he talks about him. He said, I went to do this. I, I went, went to yeah. do that. That's yeah. right. I was thinking of this. And then he changes his mind. Sometimes he says, I was commanded to do these books. And then he says, I, I decided not to do them. You know, he, he's, he's <laughs> yeah. in the mix, you know, yeah. he, he's in there. And uh, and so I found over time, although those things have, have disturbed me sometimes, I've found over time that I, I think it's a proof of what he's talking about, that there's a partnership yeah, and and that the Lord takes us where we are and and lifts us from there. I think that what's written there, from my own perspective, is that it could not possibly have been written without the Lord, but it also couldn't have possibly been written without Swedenborg. You oh, know, yeah. they're they're both in there in the mix together, and that it's it's very useful. Yeah, I also said in a recent show that we had about a scripture and this this analogy of the soul in the body that the body yes. can be missing a part here or there or, or be you know messed up in some way, uh, but it doesn't affect the soul. The soul is still present in there, and and I I would apply the same uh, to Swedenborg's work in some sense that that. Um, it doesn't affect the the core message. Yeah. Really comes leaping out. It doesn't matter whether there really were people on this planet or that planet, yeah. or or do, are, are all you know plants male and the ground is female or what yeah. you know like uh, that doesn't matter as much as the stuff about how you treat other people. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I, uh, it's something I've thought about a lot. I would prefer if the the books were just free of error. It just happened to be like, hey, sure. this is like a divine dump of information and it's all good. You just do what they say and you're good. But it does seem, yeah, that there are these these factual errors in there. These, and like some things that he, he makes claims about the way that the physical world, not often. I mean, it's not shocking much. how right. little is obviously wrong considering how far we've advanced since mm. he was. So that, I yeah. mean, but there are the certain- hundreds of years and the millions, three yeah. and a half million Latin words of his published theological works that's a lot of material, you know, and there are a few things you can point to. Yes, that, but but not like whole whole bits that you, you that this is obviously there's no way it could it could happen. You right, know? and we have to reject the entire work, divine love and wisdom. That's because, right. You know. Yeah. It, so that said, though, there's certain things that make me think. Okay, that seems like whatever the nature of his spiritual acceptance of truth was, it didn't, like, change all of his facts about what he knew about the world. Right. Like, it doesn't, it didn't suddenly make it so he knew everything about biology. Um, yeah, he knew of the existence of planets and, that hadn't been discovered yet. It, yeah. it did have, and he talks about this, that, and that's the same true with all of us, that, that it flows into what we've already got. Like, he says, yeah. angels are not allowed to teach us new things that we don't. Right. 
No, they just work within the folder we've already got in our minds kind of thing. So Yeah, there's one part where he's, he's, he's wondering whether there's spontaneous generation or whether all organisms arise from uh, seeds or eggs or some, some kind of pre-existing biological structure. And he says, he doesn't, he says, well, some people seem to think it's this, some people seem to think it's that. That's right. This would seem to support that he doesn't know. Like he does, right. He knows all kinds of things about the spiritual world, but it doesn't mean he has like access to, I can just learn anything I want anytime. He's still, even in his work, one of his published works is showing some uncertainty there. The, yeah, yeah, and so you get this illustrative material, and sometimes that's yes. where it's problematic. He's, he'll, he'll, sometimes he just uses an illustration. It's not wrong. It's just from something we don't do anymore. We don't yeah. wrap spices in, you know, newspaper anymore. What yes. yeah, like that? That's just not what we do. Uh, but that's not the core message. That's just supposed to be illustrative and helpful to illustrate the core message, yeah. which is something spiritual. So yes, and so, it could be that there's there's like tears. Like, is it that everything that he's knows about spiritual world? He's got that solid, but it's when he's trying to illustrate it by physical world things, he doesn't always know because the way that that knowledge works, I don't know. And I feel like, but I feel like it doesn't matter to me whether there are some things wrong or uh, no, no things wrong. Because I still maintain that whatever whatever imperfections it has, it's the best single source of knowledge. Right. That we have. That it's not. There are other things that know more th- uh, than he does about the way that uh, you know geology works or something. But nobody's got the whole picture and so many piercing insights into all kinds of areas, like like I find in Swedenborg. Right. And and the turning point for me was when I realized, you know, when I've practiced it, and it worked. That is yes. what's the most important thing to me. That's the right. fact that that worked, and so. I, I'm not practicing whether plants are male or female or what. That's right. But but when I practice repentance or when I try, you know, loving my neighbor or laying aside some evil or something like that, and yeah. that stuff works, then I okay. The core of this thing is yeah. is uh, it's active. It's executable or something. Yeah, you know? I was I was blind and now I see that right. whatever's going on there. When I get into that material, suddenly. Uh, my life makes more sense and my mind behaves better. And I just like, wait, something's here. Uh, all I know is that something's working. Ultimately, the purpose is to connect us with heaven and with, with some direct source of information. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something a little indirect about a book. Yeah. What you really want to get hooked up is something direct and, that, and he, it has that effect. He even describes his concepts as containers at, at one point. That's saying right. That this is, here's some things that will get it so the right spiritual ideas can right. come in. So, yeah, we, they're vessels. We, we could go That's on right. and on and on, but come on. We Good got, question. We got, a, we got a time limit. Obviously, this should be a whole show. We'll get right on that. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right, that's our show for this week. Thanks again so much for watching. Next week, we're going to be back with our question-answering panel doing one of our 10 question shows where we take 10 of your excellent questions and try to answer them as best we can. The the week after that, Labor Day weekend, we're not going to be having a show, both because of the holiday, but also I'm going to be uh, in London doing the Conference for Consciousness and Human Evolution. So if you happen to be in the area, check that out there. I'll be talking about Swedenborg stuff, and then we'll be back uh, the following week with a show about the law of attraction and what Swedenborg's perspective on it is. Hope you all have a great couple of weeks, and it's it's been a pleasure hanging out. Swedenborg and Life is Amy Aquarola, Morgan Beard, Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Matthew Childs, Alexa Cole, John Connolly, Cara Dom, Chris Dunn, Stuart Farmer, Ben Keyes, Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.